They say the world can be hard, cruel, and ugly. Trust me, it gets worse if you're hungry and thirst. Doesn't push you from position, last place to first. Can't build a foundation without having feet in the dirt. So I put in the work, grind harder than most. I don't chase accolades of the living, I'm facing a ghost. That's what makes me the GOAT. Depending on who you ask, my brother, whatever task. Got it covered like a mask, guaranteed they can't see me at the open run. Cause I cook competitors until they look well done. Don't act like you don't know where I held from. I had to climb up out the trenches, sit on benches, throw my time and come. Don't be mad at the player, be mad at the game. Sneak this in the hating, that's a flag on the play. Me falling off, huh? That'll be the day I'm like, bolt in the race, leave the track, flan bay, it's the open run. September 11, 2001. This past weekend marked 20 years since 9-11. I recall the day vividly mostly because I couldn't get through to my family and I know they were trying to get in touch with me. At the time, I was still living back and forth between New York, well, I lived in Hoboken, New Jersey, and Toronto, where I was getting ready to move, where I actually already moved in 2001. And so that day, it could be assumed that my son's mother thought that I was still in New York, knowing that I'd take the PATH train from Hoboken Station to Herald Square at 34th and 6th in the city, and that my first stop when I got from under the Hudson River, where the train goes, is World Trade Center. There was some sense of panic, and I can totally understand that. This is one of the one times in my life where I didn't know what was about to happen. I had no idea. I mean, like, seriously not know what's going to happen. At the time, I was in Toronto. If they hit the towers in New York, could they hit the CN Tower in downtown Toronto? You know, near where I lived. It was something to consider. And I remember everyone either staying at work that morning because it was early. And I had gotten in early that day. Or going home. People were scared to travel. They wanted to be on public transit. Like it was. It was something. And before I go too much deeper into the conversation. I want to welcome you to the Open Run with Will Strickland. That would be me. The Open Run with Will Strickland is brought to you by the fine folks at Press. We are press.net. I can be found across these rough interweb streets at W underscore Strickland and the number one on Twitter, Will Strickland and the number one on IG and across all streaming platforms where podcasts can be found. I mean, I could spend an entire podcast talking about 9-11, what it was in New York and finding friends who were, I had a friend who they found against the building like four days later, just sitting there. She was still alive, just covered in soot and in shock. It's crazy. She was just sitting there. I don't know how long she was sitting there, but they found her for it. Her family must have been crazy. I never really talked to her about it. I don't, uh, I don't know if the depth of the trauma, but they seemed to be okay. But she was in shock, just sitting against the building. I'm like, wow. And maybe it's a matter of American arrogance that we don't believe we can be attacked on our own soil. Or maybe some people thought that it was an inside job. And the kind of the conversations I've been having lately with different people about it, because they approached me about it, and I told them I wasn't in New York at the time. I was in Toronto, have ranged everywhere from conspiracy theories, or if that's what you were into, to who did what. Shouts out to my man, Immortal Technique. 
has a song called, depending upon who puts it online, Bin Laden or Bush Knocked Down the Towers, referring to then-President George W. Bush. So, yeah, these conversations have been deep. And in some instances, I was almost being attacked. Like, uh, you know, somebody said, it's been 240 months since that happened. Like, well, why are you 240 months? Is that to create more drama? Like, it's 20 years. Babies under the age of two, maybe auto leases, and some phone plans should be mentioned in terms of months. On a 48-month plan. You know, always 18 months. Two in prison? Uh, come on. I mean, nobody... Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, yeah, you got 240 months in prison? I don't know. But it was tripping me out the aggression that was coming out. You're not a patriot. Well, I used to be a Patriots fan. No, I mean a patriot to the country. Ah, oh, that's a odd conversation to have with somebody who's aware of who and what the country is. But okay, you want to dance? I'll bite. Let's rock. And see, the whole process is funny to me because at the end of the conversation, I'm not well liked. I get it. But here's the best part. If you don't like me, all I can suggest for you is to breathe in and then breathe out. Because there's nothing else you can do. People out here writing checks their asses can't cash and should know. That I've never bounced a chin check in my life. Not a tough guy. Not a punk. But it's unnecessary for you to violate all your HMO plan, especially during a pandemic. Arguing about 9-11, who did what, is done. How do we move forward? We're going through another thing, this pandemic. People are adapting and adopting much as they did 20 years ago to what had happened in the world and the uncertainty. We don't know where this pandemic's going to end, if it's ever going to end. Will it always be a part of our lives? We can see little things and institutions within our lives changing dramatically, whether it be vaccine passports or where you can and cannot go without your fugitive slave papers, as some people are calling them. Is it offensive? Yeah, more than likely. But I understand the sentiment. And in this time... I started this podcast. I didn't know if I wanted to do something like this. I had no idea. And I go back to episode one. I was really unsure, much like I was in 2001 and much like I was during this pandemic. Like, when is it going to end? When is it going to start? And if this is my last podcast, and I'm not saying this is, but it's something to think about. You know, when does it end? And the payoff's been sweet so far. I can't front. The friends and family that came on to support what I'm doing, the people I didn't know, who I now know better, and I'm glad and better for knowing them, who've been a part of the open run with Will Strickland, I appreciate you. And I think about doing things on your own and making a determination. What are you going to do to rebuild? What are you going to do to enhance your life? And I go back to my early podcast days with my partners at All Balls Don't Bounce. And I remember having a conversation with them after Dwayne and I had gone to a couple of basketball games and people were saying, yo, you guys, your commentary in the game sounds like you should be sitting over there where, at the time, Chuck Swarski and Leo Routens, the Raptors play-by-play -play and color commentator at the time, as we were sitting in the arena, they said, we should be sitting there. We laughed it off, you know, briefly. And we thought, well, we know we're not going to get those gigs, but... Why don't we start our own thing? And you never know the depth of your own talent until you work for yourself. But it wasn't going to be just Dwayne and I. We didn't have the kind of cachet that would make a legitimate sports podcast, at least at the time in our thinking. We needed someone who was a, attached to sports on a daily basis. At the time, I wasn't, other than playing sports. Dwayne either. 
He's working in a record label. And then there's a guy who was doing an article. Went to school with a guy, a friend of mine, who is now the assistant general manager of the Minnesota Timberwolves. They went to school together at Northwestern. And I guess he was coming in to talk about him. Came down to the gym where I was playing basketball. We were going to have a conversation about Joe. And Morgan Campbell came up and we started talking. And I'm like, that's the guy. He's at the biggest newspaper in Canada. He writes sports right now. Let's bring him in. And over some tuna sandwiches I got from an establishment that, uh, well, I can say their name. It's Quiznos. I told these guys what we were going to do over the next year was going to change what we did in radio and podcasting forever in Canada. I like to think that, you know, I've been first at a bunch of different things in my life um, that were good. You know, I like being first in everything except being last. And I think, you know, whether I'm talking about doing the first ever online concert in Black Music's history with Ghostface Killer, Capadon, and Raekwon, being the first ever American president of the Urban Music Association of Canada, or teaching the world's first university-accredited course on hip-hop culture. I like being first. In this instance, we were going to be one of the first podcasts to transition from podcast to network, and we did that. I told these guys in the meeting, if we do this right, in less than a year, we'll be at network. In seven months, we were at TSN with a new show. It started off as a podcast, one-on-one with Will and Wayne for the news, views, and truths that you choose on the NBA and beyond. It was a launch. It was great. And when you think about what your purpose is in this life, and you start to realize that through your efforts, what you choose to do, despite obstacles, despite naysayers, barriers real or imagined, you should understand that your purpose protects you. I wholeheartedly believe that and employ that in the way I move on a daily basis. So now I'll jump off this soapbox and let you know that as long as I'm here talking about sports and life, basketball and life, I'm glad you're along for the ride with me. Going to bring in a friend of mine who does something similar. Steel Sharp and Steel. I'm going to make sure you guys come back for more of The Open Run with Will Strickland on the other side of this. Give me more of what you asked for. It's the open run with Will Strickland in conversation with the son of Mac Jones <laughs> and Miss Barbara Ann. My man, Bomani Jones. What's up, Bo? Yo, I felt man, like Rod what's... when I said that part. <laughs> yeah, that's a definitely sounded like Rod there, man. It's all good over here, man. What's going on with you? Trying to maintain daily operation. Appreciate you coming on to do this. Now, as I do with every podcast, I have my guests who come on run their resume and you have quite the resume and i think what's important to note in your resume is the gaps and what it took for you to, to close those gaps as you went through your career so far yeah i was about to say i started uh freelance writing about music and just kind of life in the year summer of 2000 graduated from college in 2001 uh finished a master's degree in 03 another one in 05 I started writing a column for AOL Black Voices on music once a week in 2004. And that is also the year I did my first freelance piece for ESPN, which is wild. This is all like 17 years ago now. Mm. Um, 
And so I have worked really for the better part of the last 16, 17 years in various capacities with ESPN. Uh, times where I was a freelancer, but was treated like I worked there for real. You know how that kind of thing. <laughs> right. Times. Um, the last eight years, I have been under contract with them to do television and audio stuff. And in the uh, in-between time on that, in the year 2008, I started doing local sports radio in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I did that for about a year and a half, two years. And after that, I did a satellite radio show called The Morning Jones for what was then called The Score Satellite Radio. And we did that for about a year and a half, two years, somewhere between the two. Uh, worked for SB Nation, producing YouTube videos. And then, yeah, 2013. Started doing the ESPN stuff. I've co-hosted a television show called Highly Questionable. I've co-hosted a television show called High Noon. I've hosted a radio show called The Right Time that aired um, at nights and in afternoons. And I now host a podcast called The Right Time with Bomani Jones that I have been doing as a podcast form now for three and a half years. The, the, the great part about all of that is there are times when you're like, okay, what's next? You continue to build in between those times. What kept you going? What told you that this was your purpose, that you were going to do this as your vocation for the duration, basically? Well, I think I figured out pretty quick that I was good at it. Like, mm -hmm. I figured out that I was a pretty good writer um, pretty early, but that was such a tenuous, inconsistent life. Like, it was just hard to, to bank on anything or feel any kind of uh, security with it. Um, and so I when I got the chance to start doing radio, which didn't pay no whole lot of money. But when I got in that, I was like, Oh, this is it. Like, this is, this is the thing I can do and I can do well. And I really enjoy it. Like that was the biggest thing for me is that I really, really enjoyed it. And I think doing radio was the first time though, that I realized that I did not work for my employer. I work for myself. And so right. my investment in the stuff that I did was completely different. So when this radio station got sold and the new radio station didn't want to hire me, it didn't matter. I worked for me. And so mm -hmm. I kept going and took a radio show to another place and built it up and made it into a different way. And as the circumstances uh, came around, that was the end of that. But I never had a doubt that I had quality product. Like with writing, sometimes I had some questions about that. But with stuff on there, I knew I had quality product. And for me, it was just finding places that would pay me to do it while I could also do it the way that I wanted to do it. And I'm really running now on about a good 13 year streak of being able to find those places. That's a pretty good. As I like to say on the podcast, it is a losing strike <laughs> that you're on because you're definitely winning. Yeah. Um, I, I recall when we first met and we met on the phone before we ever met in person. Right. It was years in between the time we spoke. And I, I was on the Morning Jones a couple of times, you know, and you've been on. You know, my podcast, my show at ESP or TSN, basically mm -hmm. the same thing in Canada. And we'd never met in person. We didn't right. meet in person until 2018. So it was like, but we had been working together almost a decade, which is crazy when I look back at it. Yeah, it's a real right? 21st century situation. You know what I mean? Like I think well, about I that. There's a lot of people. I was like, yo, have I actually met this person yet? And like you finally come across them. What I say to people like that very often is like, oh, you got a face. Like anybody I meet where I've just seen a Twitter avatar that they've had forever that is not their face. And you get them like, oh, I didn't know you had a face. Isn't right. that something? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a unique dynamic. And when I speak about the Morning Jones, I'm going to play this game we do called The Association. I'm going to throw mm -hmm. some names out there. You give me an expression based on what you hear, and we'll go from there. So first and foremost, DJ Mike Hitman. The greatest. Shot down. Yeah, he's the greatest. 
Like literally the greatest. There was just a week where he called in every day. It was like halfway through the first year. It was like summer of 2010. And he called. And he told this story about the last time that he shot dice because somebody got knocked out. He laid out on the ground. And when he woke up and regained consciousness because the dog began to lick his face, he looked up and everybody was gone. And I think this may have been after he had told the story about having to jump out a second floor window because some, he was with some woman and her man came. And <laughs> I think it was either Thursday or Friday of that week, he called and Corey, who was a, Corey Urban, the producer, said mm-hmm. he heard that Mike told him that he was just riding around Chicago wearing a pink suit. And it, keep in mind, this show is a morning show. So it is the six o'clock hour in Chicago. And Corey's <laughs> like, why are you doing that? And Mike said, because somebody needs to see me in this suit. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is the single most interesting human being I have ever met in my life. And we can't we can't be more interesting than him. So whenever he wants to call up and be interesting, we are going to lean in on the fact that in our community is the most interesting man in the world. Easily, easily. I, I do recall that the the dice game when I came on one time, he called in. He goes, "You sound like that brother that knocked me out <laughs> of the dice game." Yes, and that became one of the part of your promos. Yes, um, that was tripping me out because he was that guy, and I like Mike so much that when I went to Chicago. I went to hang out with Mike. Yeah, didn't he get you? Didn't, didn't y'all sneak into Wrigley Field, or did he sneak into Wrigley Field? With somebody no, no, else? I was I was at Wrigley Field by myself, but I don't recall sneaking into Wrigley Field with him. But I did go to a party on the West Side, which is a value proposition. <laughs> you know, you you have to deal with some things. Yes, right. And everybody was there: the pimps, the pushers, the people, the prostitutes. Everybody was there. And uh, sure enough, somebody showed up with somebody's ex girlfriend. Oh, so your man Good Game was there, the pimp Good Game? Mm-hmm. It, it ain't no game that it ain't Good Game. <laughs> and, of course, the Don Bishop, he was there in a in a stretch Bentley in the alley behind the spot, positioned so he could make a quick escape in the event that something <laughs> happened. So being there at that, and Mike was DJing, it was his homeboy's birthday party. I still have pictures from that. But spending time with Mike is an adventure anytime you're around him. So he was definitely, yes. uh, would you say how critical a part of what we now refer to as the Morning Jones or the Bomani Jones diaspora that, that was created, that environment, that community that was created as a result of what you did and because you were able to allow these different voices to come into what you did, it actually enhanced what you were doing. Yeah, like he became almost a litmus test, right? Like if you don't get what this is, then you're not going to get what the rest of this is and a very wide range of people were able to get what that was so like we went up to chicago uh for mike's birthday in 2011 mm-hmm. like a whole bunch of people independent of each other right it wasn't like we called a travel agent got no group rate or nothing independent right. of each other we knew where mike was gonna be and Corey was gonna be in chicago that weekend and so about eight or ten of us went to chicago that weekend and we partied with mike like at his birthday party and it was a range of humanity. Like it was, Without you know, question. like it was a range, a range of gender, range of race, like all of it, right? Range, range of what country you were from. Like we right. all, you know, we all showed up there. And I do think that Mike in particular became a representation for people of the fact that I'm going to be able to figure out who you are and what you're about. And what you look like or sound like is not going to be the barrier in terms of mm-hmm. us figuring out who you are and what you are about. And that is really kind of the common theme of all the people that really came up around in that ecosystem is not one of them is like another one. But right. it's a real low judgment kind of zone on that okay. stuff, you know. Speaking of that, um, Toya, 
Yeah, Toya, Toya, Toya's fun, man. I haven't talked to Toya in a minute because she gallivanting around the world for Uncle Sam. Without uh, question. But there's nothing. I mean, I don't know if we would do this again, like you know, ten years later. But Mike Hitman's amorous attempts to woo Toya, even though such a thing <laughs> is never going to happen. That's not. <laughs> that's not really what she's about. You know right. what I mean? That will never stop. Woman, do you want me yet? No, Mike. 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 She don't want you. She don't want him. She don't want me. And right. what she won't. Right, right. Barking up the wrong tree. Yes, yes. Uh, Toya Toya is definitely a joke. She's like damn near part of my family now. She and my sister-in-law, who are both in the military, mm-hmm. interact on a regular basis. I'm like, how? Yo, that this is insane. part of that thing, though, right? Yeah, there's a lot of overlap just in people's lives that came up. Like, people meeting people that they, like, had serious relationships with and the common thread really was listening to that show. Like, mm. it, it is... One thing I've always said since I left doing that, and it's a little, like with a podcast, you can do it a bit more, but you don't get, like, the live feedback on it, but the most precious commodity that you can build in this <clears> industry <throat> is community, right? Is yes, setting sir. up something that people see and not... Not even necessarily that they see it and they're like, hey, this is me, but more so that they see it and just the entity itself says to you, come on in. You know, mm-hmm. like that's just not an easy thing to do. And so what we is a big tent sort of proposition. And we were looking to make a show that was honestly reflective of me, but as inclusive as possible. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be, you know, other than you just kind of being a sucker, like we ain't really want none of those people around. But we wanted people to understand that there's probably room for you in this as long as you cool with being yourself. Like, it's almost like a Dungeon Family kind of proposition where you look up there and you're like, none of those two cats are the same and none of them are like anybody else. But they all feel very relatable, like somehow all at the same time. I I like that that analogy for sure. And and you think about the emotional capital investment you make and being a part of that, like a guy like Joe and Rally. Yeah. Yeah, like I have talked to Joe in a minute, man. But like Joe has brought me birthday gifts before. Like, are you Joe, serious? Yeah, man. Like when I worked at radio station, once Joe uh, at the local radio station, Joe once <laughs> brought me birthday cake. Like the people who tend to like call into these shows regularly, like from that era in particular, it's like like it's harder to do that when you had ESPN. But like mm-hmm. from that time and place, those people are like legitimately friends. Like for them to be able to join us in the way that they did was a clear signal that we could be friends in real life. You know, mm-hmm. and so those are people that, you know, over time you get the phone number, whatever it is. Like I've met most of these people. I've been, you know, if I'm in those people's town or whatever, I check them out. I say what's happening. Um, like, you know, those are those were real relationships that people were able to forge off of that. And like I knew the day that it ended, I knew it. I think the hardest part of that for me was my full on recognition that it was just never going to be like that again. It wasn't no. going to be anybody's fault, but it was a very particular time, place and moment that just can't. It can't be like I was just visible enough to get people's attention, but not so visible that things were unwieldy. Right. You know, and it's a lot easier to trust the intentions of the people you're dealing with and everything else. But that was it was what do they say? It was a time, as they say. Indeed. And last but not least, Rod. Yeah. So I always tell people the thing folks don't realize about Rod is. The first time I came across Rod was in 07 because I was writing something about how uh steven jackson just been named the captain of the warriors you know and so like just the mere idea of steven <laughs> jackson in this position of authority and i wrote this thing it was kind of cheeky but also true about like why you would want steven jackson to be the captain and i had come across this quote that somebody had left on a sohh.com message board 
and he said that the Warriors were basically like the Warriors played like one dude who stole next. And then when you were like, yo, you stole my next, and that dude be like, we already got all five. Mm. <laughs> right. And I put that in there and I, you know, attributed it in the whole nine. And then when Twitter came around, we kind of caught back up. You know, I just like, oh, that's that dude. You know, because right. he used Rodham's Prime, he used the same handle. And I was like, oh, that's that dude. And so then when the show started, uh, when I was doing the local show in Raleigh, because he lived in Charlotte. So the themes that we we're going to talk about were still relevant to him. He got on board with that. And then when the satellite show came around, you know, he jumped over and he joined with that. And so, yeah, man, I go back with Rod now like 15 years. Like, it's been a while, but I've been down to the crib in Charlotte, you know, done the podcast with him, you know, out of that spot. And he's a person that I got a whole different kind of respect for because, like, I think every, a lot of people want to do podcasts and do media stuff because they're trying to get rich. Right. And I really feel like that's a dude who does this because he loves it and then figured out a way to make a living off of it. Right. Like it's this is a difference. Right. Right. And so for him, this isn't a hustle. This isn't a come up. This is a legitimate livelihood. And he figured out himself how to do that. And that's mm. just, I mean, that's crazy to me. Yeah. I love the fact that the first time I ever heard him in the show, I'm like, this cat sounds like he's like the smartest 18 year old I've heard in a long time. <laughs> and we started to interact. We actually went to a basketball game in Charlotte a couple of years ago. And it was the first time we met in person, he and his wife, Karen, just again, the connective tissue that was created through the morning Jones was, I think, so vital to so many other things. Like these guys have a podcast now they're doing quite well with, as you said, and these other people are still connected in some shape, form or fashion to what you're doing and and fully invested in seeing you be successful. So I think that's a great thing, man. I also think I appreciate that. And I also think part of what happened, too, was I think a lot of those folks were able to, like, hear themselves on the show and hear the response mm. that they were getting on the show and realize that the perspective they had, there were people out there like because the people that were there to rock with me were also intrigued and interested in what it was that they were doing right and so i don't even think it was a matter of people looking at me and being like yo he can do that i can do that too as much as the platform allowed a place for people to actually find out that they could do it because they were doing it they were doing it with mm. us right you know and so then from there they could take it to wherever they wanted to go to individually and they had made a group of friends or a group of people within that that they could then bring with them and then go mm -hmm. from there well you talked about the litmus test and after you litmus test, you go to do the thing for real. And you're at ESPN. You have a multitude of opportunities there. I guess the training ground, for the most part, was uh, highly questionable with one of the smartest people in sports and Dan Levitard. What was that experience like in, in some of the highlights, whether it be the Jerry Stackhouse stories or mm -hmm. Alonzo Mourning coming on? What are some of those highlights that stand out to you in your time with Dan and Poppy there on the yes. show? Yeah, and so the thing for me had always been that I worked at ESPN many years ago and I had a contract with them to write that was not renewed in 2007. And so I'm pretty young in the game and I don't want to say I took that as a rejection, but I definitely took that to mean I had my opportunity at ESPN and now that opportunity is over. And so I was not operating on a presumption that I was ever going to wind up back there. And so what I then decided was it would be a foolhardy mission to try to, you know, it would be silly for me to try to produce content with the goal being you're going to go to ESPN, right? right? That wasn't what I was going for. So I was doing content with the full understanding that wasn't going to happen. Like what I needed to produce almost needed to be an alternative 
to what they were doing at that space because you're not going to do ESPN better than ESPN does that better than ESPN. Right. And so, you know, within decency standards and stuff like that, I just, you know, I mapped out what the approach was and how it was that I wanted to make content and what I wanted to sound like and what I, and what I wanted it to feel like. And then when that stuff like started catching on, I then decided I did not want to make a move to a larger entity until it was understood what you were getting when you got me. Like, I didn't want you to think they were like, yo, we got this guy who's pretty good. We can bring him over here to do what we do. No, I wanted it to be established enough that what you wanted was what it was that I was doing. Yes. And so I started doing Around the Horn in 2010, and I brought over what I'd been doing from the other places, right? I was like, mm-hmm. look, y'all asked me to come on. I didn't ask to do this. I'm assuming right. you know what I do, you know, and if you don't, you're going to find out. But this is what right. I do now. Right. And it worked. They loved it. The audience loved it. Um, it really kind of began a, a point all around the horn where the panelists began to get younger and from a broader set of backgrounds than there mm. had been before. Um, but I had made the call that, OK, this is how I, this, I'm doing these things the way that I do them. I'm not going to be adaptable about working with the people that I work with, and I'm not going to be a jerk about it. But, you know, in terms of the fundamental approach, no, nah, I figured out how it is I want to do it. And so now I'm coming on with Dan, who has also done the same thing. Right. We're not the same person. And so, you know, it took us a good couple of years to really figure out how we wanted to do it. Like, I don't think people watching it understood that because the ratings went up and people liked the show a lot. But we had to figure it. But I know the first week I was on there, I think the first week we had the Jerry Stackhouse interview. And I think the second week was the Steven Jackson interview or was mm. something in that ballpark. It's, yeah, we, we are talking to Jerry Stackhouse about all the people that he has beaten up. Uh, we have Steven Jackson doing the math in his head on all the years of jail he would have gotten if the cops had caught him sneaking dope out the house that he is was sneaking out to protect his homeboy. And I realized, oh, man, I have found a space within this company that has a similar ethos to mine. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, like I did not have to adapt what I was doing really like in terms of perspective to go work with Dan. I was like, oh, we're in the same place. Plus, we got his dad and the way that we're using that, and, you know, and playing mm-hmm. off of that. And for a while, I think what was cool was that it felt like like we had the coolest show on the network in a way because the interviews had become such a unique thing. And at first, Dan and I tried to share the interviews. But the truth is, he's a savant at that. He's much better at that than I am. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't confident enough or skilled enough to lead an interview, not with Dan sitting over there when he could do it. And so Mm -hmm. it was like, cool. So Dan led the interviews, but my job became to listen for when he stumbled upon something that he didn't know. It. Right. Right. You know, and so like one example, we were interviewing a uh, Jimbo Fisher uh, when he was coaching at Florida state and Jimbo was talking about his dad working in a coal mine. And I knew that we were onto something that Dan hadn't thought about. And I was like, so how important was it for your dad that you didn't wind up working in that mine? Cause my dad uh, grew up working in a town with a hardwood mill and his dad worked at that mill and his dad's number one, goal job as a father was to make sure that none of his boys wound up working in that mill you know like that's how mills and mines work you get the people who want you to follow them in because it's family tradition and the other ones who just never want you to get in that thing ever again and so Mm. my family experience and all that's a little different than dan's right not that they didn't have struggle obviously they're cuban exiles but it was Mm. different so i hear that and i know wait a minute you got something here and so i get in and i ask more questions about that thing and then let the producers decide, you know, what it's going to be. But right. uh, I think maybe the most memorable thing, though, we did an interview with them Ray Schremer boys. I sent the link out to that a couple of days that, ago. Yeah. And that was just like, I can't believe all of what's going on here. This is the most amazing thing in the world because these 
rambunctious youngsters. I can't tell how sober they are <laughs> or are not. And they are having more fun with life and everything else in this world than anybody else. I never felt so old simply because I was like, I'm proud of you guys. I root for you, little brother. Right, right. No, I just think, you know, and there were some classic interviews, you know, and you mentioning Steven Jackson was something. I thought about that in 2007 when he named him the captain. You know who the coach was, right? You no, know, Don Nelson. Outside of Phil Jackson, probably the biggest Buddha head in NBA history. From right, a coaching but, standpoint. But he but he became it later. Like, that was the thing, is he hadn't gotten there yet, as I understood it. Or oh, is that I, his story? I, from what I understood, even when he was in Iowa, oh, Don was on the Chiba train all the time. Oh, perfect fit. So, you know, somehow that all worked out. That's why they believed back in 2007. Then they did what they did to Dirk and those guys in the first round of the playoffs. <laughs> but, you know, you go through that. And the experience of working with a guy like Dan and, like you said, picking up on those cues and learning as a result and honing your skills. You know, you move on and you have your own vehicle called High Noon. I didn't understand the name because it kind of locked you into either a time or an identity behind that High Noon thing. And I don't know how many people could relate to what High Noon meant you know, yeah, if it's in not noon. the 21st like, century. Yeah. So Yeah, yeah if it's not at noon. Uh, yeah, we, the last thing we expected was that they would go move the show three months after it started. <laughs> like that just wasn't it. And I think a lot of people saw that as some kind of rejection or some kind of problem. And it was like, no, like this is this is the way it shook out and the way they changed the schedule. But like being at four o'clock had more viewers than twelve o'clock. Like that was not a demotion of any sort. It was a shuffle, but it did like then ultimately change um, everything that we did. And now nah, we gave that a go. Um, I think it was a good show. I don't think it was a great show, right? Like it wasn't a show mm. that couldn't be canceled. And the thing is, if mm. you show, if you don't have a show that couldn't be canceled, then you got a show that can be canceled and something can happen and something can change. Um, and then that show winds up moving. And I think that's kind of, you know, that's probably the best way to put like ultimately how it went down. Like our contracts were up in March of 2020. And then that starts necessitating decisions. And then the world was shutting down. Little did we know coming around the corner and everything yeah. else, you know. But that for me was like when I started doing a highly questionable, I signed a four-year contract. And my expectation was that after four years, I would have a vehicle that was more centered around me. Mm. And that's what High Noon ultimately was. Like, was it centered around me? No, that wouldn't be a good way to put it. Was it more centered around me? You could probably say that. And I wanted to give yeah. that a go, you know. Yeah, I think you did. Yeah, because as much as I love Dan – when you're in the Dan ecosystem, everything centers around him. Like he's just that magnitude or level of star that, mm. you know, that when you get to that place with a person like that, that's just what it's going to be. Um, there's not going to be a lot of room for a blank and Dan. And right. It's nobody's fault. You know, it's not because he's demanding it or anything like that. It's just what you earn after 20, 30 years or, you know, being the man in the game. Like that's what, that's what you earn. And so, I wanted to be in something that had me a little bit like closer to the front of the sentence in and what does, I was doing. Does the right time with Bomani Jones feel like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all me, right? Like that's, right. that's, you know, and it's a podcast and that feels different, you know, like doing a television show just feels like something bigger than anything else. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like it's always going to be that they like eat right now, even in the world of all the streaming, the kids can be like, we don't watch TV and da da da. Fundamentally people understand that anybody can put a show on the internet. Right. Right. 
And it's just like being in the music industry today. There are yeah. no barriers to entry right. as long as you got a smartphone and a SoundCloud right. page. But people fundamentally know that it means something if you got a record deal. Like they fundamentally know it means yes, something if a TV company green lights what you're doing. Like there's still a prestige that comes along with being on television or on the radio or something like that or on a label. There's, it's still there. Whether people mm-hmm. want to acknowledge it or not, like it is still there. And so, you know, for me, having been able to get on these places in these big platforms, you know, and to have people do it like that, that's a, that's a big deal, man. Like that, 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 that matters a lot. And so Dan put me in positions to do that when he did not have to, and was as sharing and as generous with those platforms as anybody could be. No, when you, you know, you lift when you climb. And I think if a lot more people, especially people who look like us kind of incorporate that same mentality, that maybe you'd see more representation. Maybe yeah. you see more of that authentic who I am coming through and how my lens views these things going on, whether it be sports or music or whatever the case might be. I mean, I know you talked about writing music articles and there was a big GQ spread on you not too long ago. And, you know, I know you're listening to everything. You listen to all kinds of music. I mm-hmm. catch a commentary on music online all the time. And and how, how much more of that is possibly in your future as far as writing about music or being engaged and involved in that? So the thing about writing about music that I learned over these last 20 years is I like to do it for free. Mm. Like unless I'm doing it for somebody that's going to give me carte blanche to just do something I want to do. Like I'll write a music piece for somebody and forget to file the invoice. Like I just mm. like like I enjoy it. And that's the reason why I do it. When I do it for a living, I'm not happy. It, right. it involves writing about a bunch of stuff that you don't want to write about, you know, and everything else. So for me, I really just kind of come up with now kind of like individual things or something that really has captured me. Or unfortunately, I'm really good at writing about people when they die. It's just a talent that I got. Like I can throw together that somebody dies. I can get, you no bit in three hours. Like if somebody that I really care about, mm-hmm. I can get you something. Like I wrote after Prince died, I wrote something banging in two hours in another country. You know, like I can mm-hmm. really, really do that. But it's got to be something that like really captures me. So right now, you may have seen me tweeting about this. I'm fascinated by Sturgill Simpson. And so I'm trying to figure out what it is, how I can write something about him that's worth reading in spite of the fact that I don't listen to enough country music to really like delve in and tell you how unique this stuff actually is. I just know I really love it, you mm. know? So like if I figure out the angle and how to do it, then I'm going to, because that is that is absolutely my new fascination. I'm looking forward to that. And then, you know, we've been talking about old keys. And okay, sometimes they do open new doors. But what are some of these new doors that are opening for Bomani Jones? Yeah, well, right now I'm doing a show with Bob Costas. Uh, back on the record with Bob Costas. Um, Why are you a, saying it all casual, dog? Like, like yeah, yeah, you know, you know, you know it's, it's a little, it's a little flex. It's a little flex. I mean, Bob Costas is only like a giant in the broadcasting world. So yeah. you know, you know, I'm just doing a little. You know, I was hanging out with Bob Costas. You know, <laughs> yeah, that part is, but that is bad because. Uh, a mutual friend had hit me up and let me know that Bob Costas wanted to get in touch with me. Mm. And I honestly wondered what I had said on television that Bob Costas didn't like and wanted to talk to me about. Not to lecture <laughs> me necessarily, but to talk about, because he's a guy right. that enjoys having these kinds of conversations. So he's somebody that would call you about something that you saw on, tele- that you saw on television. And no, that wasn't what he wanted to do. He told me he had a new TV show that was coming out, and he wanted me to be a regular contributor and to contribute an essay to it and that's a no-brainer yes right like bob costas has asked you to be on his show and is giving you like carving out some space that's just you 
that's right. just yours. Like, you know, when I'm on the screen doing the essays, it's just me. I come and I participate in the panel that we put together after it. But for him to be willing to like, not just willing, but he wanted me to be the person who was on it. Like it wasn't mm. like somebody came to him with this long list of people and tried to figure it out. Like he called me like, I want you to do this. And so, yeah, we do it. Um, it's four shows per year. We got a late start this year. So we're basically running monthly. And so our next episode is the last Friday of uh, September. So uh, I think we're going to call this. I'm bad with these numbers, but uh, we, we're, we're, uh, we're coming in at the end of September. And then we've got... Um, one more in October, I believe, or October mm-hmm. or November, and then we're going to do it quarterly in 2022. As of now, there's possibility they could add more shows or whatever it is. And now it's been cool. My bosses at ESPN were cool enough uh, to allow me to do this. And it's kind of cool to be in a situation where like, I'm in production meetings with Bob Costas and guys like Ross Greenberg and John Crystal. Good. You know, Mm -hmm. and all these guys who've been really doing this for a long time. And I'm involved in putting together a television production that is unlike the TV production that I've done before. So Mm -hmm. I'm learning a lot. And there's, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but there's still people who don't know who I am. And there's still people who will watch this and become introduced to my work that may not have known it before. That's a beautiful place to be, man. And you, you talked about working at HBO, one of the greatest television shows, if not the greatest television show in broadcast history. The Wire um, was a part of HBO. And just recently, Michael K. Williams passed and uh, he was one of the most unique characters. You talk about Mike being that guy, one of the most interesting guys. Well, a gay hitman with a code ends up being former President Barack Obama's favorite character on the show. And if you think about it, knuckleheads in the street we're relating to a gay hitman and not really relating to him as being gay, but just how fierce he was in the streets and what his code was all about. So, you know, I've seen you, you know, tweet about Michael, especially after the death, but even during the show and and, and during the show's run, having these conversations about what the wire means to the pub, the social contract, really. At the end of the day, and, and one of the first conceits that happens is right in the beginning of the first episode with McNulty interviewing the kid about Snot Boogie being murdered, right. playing, tossing them bones, buying the cut rate, right? And um, he's he's asking him, like, tells him what happens. I'm not, I don't want to go to court. I'm not going downtown. I'm not talking to none of the people. I'm going to talk to you right here, and that's it. He says, every week on Friday night, we toss dice, and uh, we let the pot get deep. Snot Boogie robs it. He runs. We beat his ass every week. And McNulty, who's not familiar with this world, much like you said, like there'll be people that become familiar with your work. McNulty's becoming familiar with the workings of this institution within this ecology here in this neighborhood. He says, I got to ask you if every week he comes to the game and every week you let the pot run deep and every week he robs it and every week you chase him down and beat him down. Why do you let him play? Son sucks his teeth and says, got to, man. It's America. That's it. That is what the show is. And I think that, you know, when you think about that in microcosm, when you're talking about the Morning Jones and all the people that came from that, this is, we're talking about Baltimore, but that's in microcosm to what the world is, especially in America and different neighborhoods that you never see, these voices you never hear, right? And Michael's is one of those voices. And, you know, the thing with the Omar character that I wonder is, 
when people talk about how much they love that as a character, I'm always just a little curious why. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is, I do think for a lot of people that it makes you look and sound really cool to talk about how much you love Omar's character, right? Because it, <laughs> it really makes you seem like you got the <laughs> openest mind in the world. Like, it's so cool. He's gay and he robs people. Oh, my God, right? Now, there is an independent level of cool to that character in the way that he, a character that, as I recall, was only supposed to be on four episodes, mm-hmm. right? Like the original plan was all only for him to be on four episodes, but he ultimately proved to be so captivating that they had to keep him on, right? And so feared that he's just showing up outside and people are tossing him they dope before he has to go in there and show up and right. like actually get it right like it is totally an amazing character the thing about omar though and that i think is as interesting as anything else in the way that simon portrayed him i always feel like season one and i don't know this for fact but you can kind of feel when hbo leaned in a little bit right like put the mm. music up a little bit too loud with the dudes walking the street or did something weird with the visual that stuff that you didn't see later on which is very straight and to the point you know right and so they really played up in season one, Omar being gay, right? And it was like a mm. big reveal the first time he kissed his boyfriend and stuff like that. Like they really wanted you to like feel this, this dude is gay. What became interesting after the fact, like as you go in subsequent seasons and you don't have people calling him an F word as much as they did before, you know, some people still mm. doing it, don't get me wrong. Mm. But his the fact that he was gay really was just a bit more of, hey, and this other thing about him, He's gay and he robs people with his boyfriends. Right. Right. Like this just became kind of a part of who he was. But it's not like we were, it's not like we were watching the show and it was taking us through what it's like to be a black gay man in Baltimore. Right. Right. Like that that facet of identity was never centered in this. It was kind of a yeah, and this is this other thing that's going on, but ain't nobody really gonna say nothing about it because there's a good chance that he might shoot you. You know, right. Right. And so when so when people bring up like Yes, it is certainly interesting that Omar is gay. Mm. But I always thought that it was fundamentally a secondary characteristic of him as a character in a way that a television show generally would not make that, which I also think is maybe the most radical thing about the portrayal of Omar as a character is that there is a, oh yeah, and he's gay too. Right. right? Like, 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 like we, they weren't leaning into that to win points, which is why I think it's ironic because I think a lot of people also lean into Omar, you mm. know, in order to get points. And yet he had a code, but he'd also lie to you here and there. Like he lied to the cops to get some stuff done that he wanted to or whatever. Like question. he was, he could be, he was not as rigid on his code as we like to say, but a part of the show point of the show was that people could be flexible at times. Morality is that what you call it? Flexible? Yeah, yeah. Morality <laughs> is a bit of a fluid concept. You know, right. it can change and it can go back and forth. But the the key, I think the most fascinating thing about that really is that he created this gangster and it did make it possible, I think, for some people to expand their concept of what a gay person could be. And it's almost like kind of ironic that it was an advancement for some people in their own heads and minds to see a gay person as a you know person who smokes a few people throughout the course of the show but it's cool he always had a good reason 
Right. As you long know, as you can justify it without yeah. without question. But that know? says but that says a lot about like all the head trash that we bring in when we watch a show and all the things that you know where simply changing this one dynamic of this person can then change everything and then become a fascinating plot device because it's one thing when a character like Omar's spouse is killed and they want vengeance, but it's also another when that also affects like your team. You die a man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Tasha got one in the head when they were trying to bang out with the Barksdale people too. Exactly. So yeah, that 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 is. So is it a management thing as well for Omar? It's so much. Well, I also thought the funniest thing was, and I don't know whose idea it was to clearly give Omar a type. Mm. Like, like my old boy always talk about. He refers to them as uh, Omar's light skin boo one, two, and three. Like every, <laughs> like every, you know, every, every, every season, Omar bringing out another light skin boo, right? Like that. That he always had it, but they. It was just hilarious that he always had a type. Well, my man Ronaldo, aka they ain't had no honey nut Cheerios. Yes, uh, is a friend of mine, mm-hmm. um, Ramon Rodriguez, who possibly maybe coming on the podcast to kind of talk about like his relationship with Michael K. Williams and the time he worked with him. And then we had the opportunity. I ran into him in an airport. Um, he was shooting RoboCop in Toronto with Samuel L. Jackson. And I just started talking to him about Ramon and like, I appreciated his work. And, you know, would you mind coming up to the show? And he's like, whatever. So just and interacting with him over those past couple of years and like really you know, as much as you can get to know a guy that you don't really know, he's he was always rock solid to me. And so when I heard that he'd passed, it tripped me out. And I started to think about all the moments where he snitched on Bird in, 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 uh, in court, where he showed up, Maury Levy in court that time. And I used, like, he's a verb for me now. And hold on, by the if way, I want somebody to read something. He didn't snitch on Bird. He lied on Bird. <laughs> we, we always leave he did lie on out. He was lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I've turned Maury Levy into a verb now. When I want someone to check out something that I've written or to kind of like check it, you know, make sure this is right, I need your Levy's on this. Mm-hmm. I need fresh eyes. So it's just funny how all this stuff becomes a part of your lexicon. And a guy like that who smoked your favorite character on the show. Yeah. Sure did. Put that, shot, put that shotgun right in Stringer Bell's chest. I love every minute. Of what this. was your beef with Stringer Bell? He's there. It's a couple things. <laughs> One, he's just an all-out snake. You know what I'm saying? Mm. To be honest, man, I mean, he reminds me of a whole bunch of other dudes I know always out here running behind these white folks looking for their affection while looking down on the black folks that's around him. Yeah, you know, right. people. People ain't peep game on that. You know, he ain't trying to bring nobody. He kind of tried to bring Avon, but he wasn't trying to teach nobody the game that he was on. He ain't think none of them was capable of it. Only Stringer Bell was smart enough to figure out this stuff. What a bum. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, I, 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 I told just, you about just, playing them away games. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like, that was I, a bar. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, you can't have me out here rooting for the white people to steal your money. Yeah, here I was. I guess Clay Davis was the black people stealing his money, but still, it all go back to the white man in the end. Clay Davis was a representative. Yes. A vested yes, representative. Yes, yes, he was the face, right? So, yeah, <laughs> nah, man. I'm, I'm, I mean, just, and as I say, I don't know if people get it. As I would get out and hear people talk about how much they liked the Stringer character because he was trying to go legit, completely missing the point of the show that legit isn't legit. Like, right. he tried to go legit and he got robbed. Right. Like, like they can't, By better crooks. Right, exactly. Like they couldn't grasp the idea that what he was trying to go do was not inherently more noble 
than what he was doing before. Certainly less violent and certainly less black, but not more noble. I think there's a, there was no separation between loving Idris Elba and loving Stringer Bell. I think that's possible. That's that's <laughs> totally it. And that's why I have trouble separating myself and all these other movies he'd be in, loving it when he dies. I love when Denzel Washington smoked him in American Gangster. And I've told right. people this before, like, I didn't, in the end, change my opinion that I went into the movie with. But, you know, once he was um, in that movie Stringer Mandela, I kind of had to like look up apartheid and see what they was talking about. No, I just had to go back and just like, let, me make, let me make sure I understand what apartheid is about. I did my own research because right. I felt like if you was on the other side of Stringer, then I mean, I don't know how this might go for us. I looked it up and I'm still pretty down on apartheid, but I wasn't rooting for Stringer Mandela. Uh, not at all. Not at all. Well, know that there is no beef between me and you. And we want to come back for a little bit more on the open run with Bomani Jones right after this. Now listen to the sounds of the open run with Will Strickland, where the lecture is conducted from the mic into the speaker in conversation with my man, Bo Money Jones. Bo, it's been a great conversation so far, man. And I want to ask you, I don't know if you caught this whole Rashid Wallace thing recently. He was asked on a podcast if certain guys from who are playing in the NBA right now could play during his era and whether they would be beast or soft. Like there's this extremes of extremes. And one person came up in particular, the person that always comes up in these conversations, and we refer to him on the podcast as hashtag he who shan't be named because of the emotions around his name. And Rasheed said, ah, he might be a beast, you know, he'd be less successful in my era. And I'm like, there's some convenient amnesia going on here. Because I do recall in 2007, during your era, this young man scoring 25 straight points and 29 in the last 30 in myriad fashion against everything you threw at him. I didn't know you had an error either. Did yeah, you see that? Well, that was the thing I was trying to figure out because she's my man and I haven't talked to him about it. But mm. the question then becomes, so what do you consider your error? Because to be fair to him, 2007, that's his 12th year in the league. Right. So like, it becomes, who does he think of as his contemporaries? Like when he says back in my day, what day is it that he is talking about? Because he got right. drafted in 95. That is a different day. Now, my thing about that with 95 is, Yes, players and teams could have been more physical with LeBron if they had wanted to and gotten away with more without being called for fouls. Correct. But how physical can you get with LeBron, right? Like, right. like if I decide you can make the rules whatever they want, I can't hit LeBron hard enough to make right. a difference. Now, granted, that's me. But these other dudes in the league, how many of y'all could actually hit LeBron hard enough to make an actual difference? And by the way, I do think that if LeBron plays in that era, he himself becomes a more physical defender and he's knocking a bunch of y'all out. Because that's the thing I think that people lose about this time is the players back in the day were tougher because the rules required it. The right. rules now, not so much. So when people are like, man, don't nobody in the NBA fight. Yeah, because they used to not suspend you and take all your money and try to arrest you when you fought before. Right Now it's just like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. 
we're not gonna do that. You it's not that the dudes don't fight, they just can't do it in the building. Some of them are still ready to fight you. There are very few. There are no more goons in the NBA. Right, because there's no place for a goon, like an on-court goon in the NBA simply doesn't there's no functional purpose for it anymore right. another skill has gone up but it's still some cats you don't want no problems with it's just not coming up anymore not Ooh. in the game context who would you say i'm saying i don't i'm not saying i know who they are personally. okay okay right no but i'm but i think but the point is the rules are the rules are the rules and they make these things as they make them but there's somebody from some place that you don't want no problems with and he ain't the soft dude that came out of there there is no context to find these things out anymore. So I say this, for example, P.J. Tucker. I don't think you want that P.J. Tucker thing in real life. Yeah, yeah. I, I think feel pretty that, confident telling you that. But it ain't going to come up in a game because that will cost you $200,000. Yeah, he's not doing that. And I think as hard as it was for him to stay in the league or get in the league in the first place, Anthony Leon Tucker Jr. is not threatening his money. Yeah. Like, like you're going to tell me that 2004 happens and the Malice in the Palace comes up. And then after that, suddenly – Nobody in the NBA was able to fight or ever wanted to fight anymore. Right. No, that's not what happened, man. The incentives, the incentives have changed. Well, you you talked about this. What is left out of the conversation is that you don't think these guys would adapt and adopt based on how the game was played. I'm like, I grew up in multiple eras and I played in different eras every time. And every time they changed the rules, I adapted. As I get older now, I'm not going inside like that. But my jumper game is magnificent. Yeah. If I need to go in the box and make sure I create a threat, then I'll do that. But, you know, you adapt and adopt. And yeah. I, to believe that one of the smartest basketball players who ever breathed air on this planet wouldn't be able to do that is funny. And the guy who is arguably called the GOAT and probably your GOAT, if I'm not mistaken, in the, the conversations I've heard you have about Michael Jeffrey Jordan. In 2013, he said that there are only four guys that played at that time that he would feel like would be as successful, if not more so, during his era. Now, if you want to talk about somebody having an era, you could say that Jordan definitely had an era. Yeah. Rashid, not so much. And he said that it would be Dirk Runner Nowitzki. He's thinking about Larry Bird. Mm -hmm. The great Timothy Theodore Duncan, the late Kobe Bean Bryant, and of course, he who shan't be named. This is the guy who, if you want to get some advice about who's worthy, yeah. you might want to think he's that guy. Yeah, I, I'm glad. It's interesting to hear Mike put Dirk on there because the thing is, you had to be able to work in the phone booth back then. Like mm. made, the, the big difference between now and then is you weren't getting it off ball movement back then. You had to be mm. able to get it yourself. And there's like a certain artistry that comes from just, you know, what one on one basketball and defense were and where you'd be positioned and what the moves would be and everything else. And yeah, Dirk, we're going to look back in like 20 years. We did it kind of with Larry Bird, where we had to go back like in the late 90s and be like, Okay, the white folks wasn't just making this up. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, this dude is that dude. You're right. Well, I mean, growing up and seeing and despising him from 1979 to like whenever, but finding out in high school that using his free throw routine helped my free throw percentage. Mm -hmm. You know, when you can ball, you can ball. And Dirk, if you watch the 2011 series, when he caught the ball at the free throw line, he had enough moves to get to the basket and score, plus he shot well enough. Yeah. And he was going, if that was a problem, if they, figured out how to use them in 2011 like that. If they had thought about that in 2007, they'd never lose the Golden State. Avery Johnson. Yeah. Well, we also – Worst plan ever. Yeah. We just underestimated – we underestimated how good he was and overestimated how good his teammates were. Go look at that team he took to the 2006 NBA Finals. Just go yes. look at that roster when you get a chance. Carried oh. them. Carried them. Like, we, we didn't – we were too busy thinking European players were soft. 
to recognize mm. that that dude was down there carrying a franchise on his back. I think it, that's a lot of what gets left out of his narrative for sure. When you look at, you know, Hall of Famers, we had the Hall of Fame ceremony this past weekend. Jordan and his, one of his, I wouldn't even call him a nemesis in so much as the whooping boy, whether it be 82 against Georgetown or the multitude of years he did them in, in New York with Patrick Ewing being there for uh, Derek Jeter's induction in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But did you check out anything during the Hall of Fame ceremonies for the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame? No, not too much. I need to go back and check Chris Webber because I saw that he went in and had a bit of a if-you-know-you-know you know moment uh, in his speech. Um, mm-hmm. Like, do you think Chris is a Hall of Famer? Uh, no. But again, again, let me step back on that. There's no person in the Hall of Fame – that has less than eight all-star appearances. Like generally that's the demarc- line of demarcation. And it's changed how they voted on the all-stars now. Chris was 11 straight. The ones in Toronto, ones in Miami. Had to retire prematurely, won two championships. He had those things. I look at Chris Webber, five-time all-star, but he played against Duncan, Dirk, in, in the Western Conference. Duncan, Dirk, KG. They're, it was hard to get in that mix. I remember one all-star game, they play all four of them together in a lineup. But Chris was like the last in the pecking order, but he was one of the first, like Rashid, a four who could shoot it, who could handle the ball, make decisions. And he got, he's kind of on the cusp, but I don't think he was a Hall of Famer. And then you look at the fact that it's not the Hall of Achievement all the time. It's about the Hall of Fame. And he was famous in college. Well, that's the big thing. He's not just famous, but also very accomplished in college. I think the college thing is what pushes it over. The thing with Weber, Weber's in an interesting space to me where, it would be best if Chris Webber weren't your best player. We found that out in the playoffs, Mike Bibby. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm saying, but you don't want, you probably don't want Chris Webber to be your best player. Here's the problem: who's better than Chris Webber, right? Like, like finding this person to be better than Chris Webber when you need because you need somebody to be better than Chris Webber. Like, you just go go on the street and just find some dude in free agency, or you can't. <laughs> he was so talented, and he helped begin the paradigm shift of what a power forward was without question and i can't i'm actually trying to think of a power forward before him who like i mean because keep in mind we get him before we get kevin garnett we get him before Mm -hmm. we get rashi wallace um like chris weber had handled before kevin garnett had handled right like that was a developed skill for garnett that like Mm -hmm. ultimately came around chris weber was doing that as a freshman in college right he's such but he's such a fascinating case in so many ways where I do think it's hard to tell the story of basketball the last 30 years without talking about Chris Webber. Well, it's question. difficult, and that'll, like, that'll get you in. Yeah, and I think that's what people fail to realize. They look at just the raw numbers and not the overall body of work and what it meant and how it changed certain things. You know, there's an argument that you – know, I think you did the, the UNLV documentary, didn't you? Mm-hmm. And so how influential they were, but also – a lot of people fail to realize or remember that the first team with the long baggy shorts was University of Illinois, but Kendall Gill and, and right. Nick Addison, cats, Marcus Liberty. They they forgot about that. Marcus was in my in my class in high school. So I remember them being the first ones rocking like that. They didn't get their credit though. But again, it happens. It's like music. Little Richard didn't get his credit. Right. You know? So you look at the I guess you talk about Chris Weber, Chris Boss probably had the best speech of the night. Ben Wallace's was kind of cool, but I think there's a complicated legacy with all these guys. You talked about like what makes Chris Webber a Hall of Famer. Ben Wallace, first undrafted player to make the Hall of Fame. And it makes me think about Jarek Rose. Will he be the first player who became the MVP of the NBA to never make the Hall of Fame? 
Yeah, and there's really no case for putting him in. Now, I make the, the argument. youngest MVP is is that enough though? He didn't no. win in college. No. I mean, yeah, he I mean they won that year in college. He also missed a free throw for whatever it's worth. Um, this is the thing for me on Rose. It's a what could have been story. Mm. It totally is. And there's some guys in the Hall of Fame on what could have been, you know, like guys who had it. Like, I mean, Tracy McGrady, if you're being honest about it, is a what could have been story. But go look at how, like, look at the years that Tracy McGrady racked up at the top of his game. Right. Derrick Rose really racked up two of those. Right. And then just never got back to even like an all, like a consistent all-star level of play. And the truth is, he shouldn't have won that MVP in the first place. And it's not his fault that people just wanted to hate on LeBron James after yeah. that move to Miami. Like I understood the argument for Derrick Rose's MVP. It wasn't without basis, but he wasn't the MVP that year. And I well, wonder, we, there's so much about Derrick Rose that I look at, and I wonder how much differently we view it if they just hadn't given him that damn MVP, right? Like, do the people of Chicago treat him the way he did after he got hurt and everything else if he just didn't win the damn MVP? That was an interesting whole thing because it divided the locker room, the Jimmy Butler people, and the Joe Noah people, mm-hmm. right? Joe Noah was on Derrick Rose's team. Jimmy Butler's team is a new boy trying to take over. While Jimmy Butler has no beef with Derrick Rose. That was the most interesting part. 100%. About but that's this is what happens. This is the Kawhi situation in San Antonio where the player knows his body. But the obligation of the team doctor is to get the product back on the floor as soon as possible. So when they say you're cleared, why do they always announce in the paper or in the news that the player is cleared? That player might not be mentally or physically ready to play, but we've given them the okay to continue playing. And so when he sits out, that creates this divide between the fans who look to the team and now they're like questioning the player. And it happened with Derrick Rose too in Chicago, where he's from, which is odd to me, but that's how they, he was cleared to play in February. He did not play in the playoffs that next year. Right. And Joe Noah was his spokesperson that whole year saying that, yo, he's still going through it. I don't know why they cleared him, why they even said anything about that. He's not ready mentally. After an injury like that, you question everything. I blew my Achilles. I never thought I'd play basketball again. I didn't. You know, I gained all this weight. You see game erosion. If you have a bad game, like you you question so much. Think about what he does at his level. So it, it's something to see, man. And, and I think I always wonder that. Like, will he, will Derek Martell Rose make the Hall of Fame I don't think so. And that would be something unique. Does the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame induct him because it would look awkward that a guy who won an MVP in the NBA not be in the Hall of Fame? Well, the problem is nobody knows anything about the voting. Is the most opaque voting process of all the voting. So none of us can answer that. Right. Like there's nobody to look bad because we don't know who they are. Well, this is true. And it it seems the goalposts seem to move every year. So that would probably be something that never gets revealed. But did you hear about this thing with the FBI and this hitman in, in Colorado that offered yep. Kobe Bryant a $3 million deal to get rid of his problem in Colorado. I had not seen this. Yes. So this was revealed and I'm not going to give his name, but the FBI unearthed and revealed this document that uh, there was an offer made to Kobe Bryant during the, the rape charges that were levied against him initially. Wow. That this hitman would go and take care of his problem. I, I, I can send you the article if you want to check that out later on. But it was deep to me that this happened. And I'm wondering why they put this out right as the Hall of Fame induction ceremony is going out. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And all right, skipping forward from that, we met, like I said, in 2018 during Full Court 21. You came out and checked it out. Appreciate that. Now that Adam Silver is thinking about ways to enhance the game even more. Think about doing an all-star game 
outside on a wood court. They covered the court for the Rucker a couple of years ago. I'm still just thinking about doing something like that, like the NHL has done with the uh, Winter Classic for hockey, bringing it outside, bringing it back to the essence of the game where you first learn the game. What do you think about that? I don't think it's going to work the way they think it will. And the reason mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to work the way they think it will is that the Winter Classic and the Field of Dreams joint tap in to the viewer's concept of nostalgia. Mm. Basketball don't have that, right? Because the game is so culturally dominated by the players. And so like the Rucker and all that seems like a great idea and it would be like a fun watch for us, but it ain't going to evoke the same thing in the median viewer that you're going to get right. out of these people playing baseball in the cornfield. That's going to wind up being your dilemma. Like the way you get it in to where the larger audience really cares about that is to go do it at some gym in Indiana. And that sounds whack. That sounds lame. But that is the analog to what they're talking about, you know, over there with that other stuff. That's an amazing lens to to view it through. And I think that's a really important thing to note uh, there. And and as we get ready to get out of here, I want to ask you to give me, uh, I normally do like a starting five of certain things. And I didn't know if I wanted to do like a North Carolina player starting five, but what really struck me and looking at what you've done with media is a black broadcaster starting five and who you would name in that and at what position they would all play. Oh, that is interesting. Oh man, position is going to be a little difficult. So I'm going to just put them out here and then you can figure out how to shuffle them after we're done. Uh, are we doing this in sports? I mean, let's do it in sports. But if you, if you feel like somebody who is such a giant that's outside of that, that needs to be on this list, all right, I got I'm it. open to the possibilities. I wish right now in sports, um, like Stephen A. Smith and Charles Barkley have kind of got to be your one too, no matter how you spend it. And then it don't really matter what your opinion is about either one of them or how you feel about them. Like Charles Barkley is the most indispensable person on any sports television show anywhere. And, right. and Stephen A. Smith is just really good at this, man. Like, mm. I, I don't know if you don't do this for a living to fully appreciate how good he is at this. And that dude be grinding. Like, like, like he working hard. Like, I'm always like, how hard are you willing to work? I don't know if I'm willing to work as hard. Um, <laughs> that as check he, reflects. That check reflects. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but he worked harder than the check for a long time. You mm-hmm. know, like, it's not like he got the check and then all of a sudden he had to turn it up. Like, no, this is. It's like the roots getting on Jimmy Fallon on yeah. the road 300 days a year. And now they can, yeah. you know. It worked out for yeah, him. Yeah, but Stephen A's still going to be on the road 300 nights a year. Like, that's right. the thing. So those guys, um, Mike, Michael Wilbon's one that you can't forget because PTI, like, A, PTI matters that much. And B, go walk around with Michael Wilbon. You go find out how famous you are not. Right. When you go <laughs> kick it with Michael Wilbon. Like, that okay. dude is a full-on 100% star on this. You got to go to an OG like Brian Gumble. I think he's easy for some people to forget as a sports dude to realize it, though. But especially, like, go talk to Michael Wilbon about Brian Gumble, right. for example. Like, especially right. those dudes that come out of Chicago of that era and, like, the level of reverence that they have for that dude. Like, mm. they don't make they – they do not make a lot of those. And number five – let me see who else I throw out here on this one. If I went with number five – Will Strickland. There we no, go. No, don't do it. Don't do it. That's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I got I got I got I got I got it's it's a it's a tough one for me to think about like who exactly the fifth person would be uh on something like particularly like this. I mean, you talk about sports, is it is it James Brown? Is it, you know, well, um, I think James Brown Johnson. 
Gus Johnson. Well, well, let me tell you this about James Brown. I think it's something easy to lose sight of. Harvard University graduate James Brown, by the way. Put it Um, in there. Yeah, something that could be interesting to lose sight of about James Brown is he's been doing it for so long. Hey, man, ain't a whole lot of brothers hosting the NFL pregame. Like Kurt Menefee ultimately got that that gig down the line, but James has been in that position for a long time. Without question. So, I mean, I think that's a a fair – and he played ball, too. Yeah, he did. That's a big dude, if you didn't know. Like, that's an imposing man. (laughs) That is an imposing man. We'll put him at center then, just for the sake of conversation. Charles, the four. We'll yes. put Will Bond at the three. Screaming A at the two. Yeah, oh, you should. And at the point, Brian Gumble. I'm with it. Sound like a plan? I'm with it. If you had an opportunity to play one-on-one against any person in the history of the game, who would it be and why? Any person in the game. It's all in the game, yo. Yeah, I want to play one-on-one. See, it's tough because it's like I want to say I want to play one-on-one against Scott Brooks. Because I feel like that's the best chance I would have at victory. But you know what that would actually be? It would be my best chance at getting embarrassed in front of people by Scott Brooks. <laughs> what people fail to realize is that the 13th, 15th, 17th guy on the NBA bench would cook your boots in seconds. You don't like I say, Scott Brooks, you see that dude roll up and be like, <laughs> give him the chump. Okay. <laughs> okay. No doubt. Well, there's no chump in here, man. I appreciate you doing this. Let them know where they can find you, man. Hey, I appreciate it, man. Now you follow me on Twitter at Bomani underscore Jones. It's the same as Instagram. I got a podcast called The Right Time with Bomani Jones. You can check it out wherever you get your podcast. And back on the record with Bob Costas, 1130, 11.30 p.m. Eastern on the last Fridays of the month. Beautiful things, man. I appreciate you. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Be easy. All right, out. I want to thank my man Bomani Jones for coming on and spreading love. It's the Strickland way here on the open run with Will Strickland. Continue success, my guy. As always, you know I am here. You will always have steel sharpening steel. Respect and love. And now on to the news, views, and truths that you choose on the NBA and beyond. I want to send love, light, and a speedy recovery to former Phoenix Sun and former Los Angeles Laker, Cedric Sobalos who is suffering from COVID right now in the intensive care unit and really dealing with this thing. I mean, he's had some health issues in the past and including having a stent, two stents put in his heart, I think back in 2011. And I just recall the first time I met Sid was when we were working out pre-draft workouts. He was working out at Rice, played a lot of summer games and that summer before he, he got drafted. He was down there working out. We worked out every day. I don't think he ever had a play rim for him in the NBA. He's one of those guys that... Some people might call him a garbage guy, but he just knew how to score, whether the offense was set or broken. They didn't they didn't run plays for him. Just go, said, just do what you do. And he actually led the Lakers for two seasons in scoring. This was pre-Kobe and pre-Shaq, of course, in the kind of down years. Played with Magic for a little bit. Led the league in field goal shooting one year as a forward. Impressive. Wasn't a center. The 92 junk champion who bit D. Brown, the whole, the blindfold on. Everybody alleged he he could see. Whatever the case is, he took a risk. He went up, he dunked, he won. Fun little fact about Cedric Sobalos. Well, a couple of them, as a matter of fact. He's he's part Mexican, 
and was asked to play on the Mexican national team in 1992 to compete for the Barcelona Olympics. I don't think they even made it. I don't know if he even really had a national team. He would have been the guy, if I'm not mistaken. That would have been something. And also, he was a rapper. He's on the 1994 compilation Basketball's Best Kept Secret. Chris Webber was on that album as well. And said did a song called Flow On with Warren G, the regulator. And did another song with fellow nba -er Dana Barros. Remember Dana Barros? Nice little guard back in the day. It was a one-time all-star in the NBA, I think, when he was at Philly. He did a song with them. Also with Grand Poobah, Sadat X from Brand Nubian, those guys. AG, Showbiz and AG from, from Showbiz and AG. And also the leader, one of the leaders of DITC, Digging Into the Crates. Diamond D, my man Joseph Kirkland, who I'm still trying to get on the show, talk about some of our past exploits. And last but not least, for said, a lot of people didn't know this, and I didn't really know this until recently, that he and Kobe Bryant are second cousins. Their grandfathers were brothers, so get better soon, said. Shout out to Kevin Pangos, the Canadian guard who's been playing internationally, played at Gonzaga, had a pretty stellar career there was signed to a two-year contract with the Cleveland Cavaliers. And it makes me ask questions now that Ricky Rubio's there. You get another point guard in Pangos. What are they going to do with Darius Garland and Colin Sexton? Maybe I'll have my man Justin Rowan on to talk about what's going on in the land of Cleveland. Shouts out to Adam Sandler. Shoot a new movie called Hustle. And several members of the Philadelphia 76ers are a part of this shoot including Tobias Harris, Matisse Thibel, Tyrese Maxey, Seth Curry, and Glenn Rivers. Maybe in this movie, the Sixers make it out of the second round. What do you think? Let me know. You can hit me up on my socials. No, nah, I'm not. I get, maybe I am serious. Anyway, you know how to reach me. And now to the WNBA. Let's talk about the Power Five because there's a lot going on as the regular season ends in less than a week. The playoffs start on the 23rd of September. There are going to be some teams on the outside looking in, making that final push. And this was a big week, including the big game of the week between the Mercury and the Sun. And the Sun overcame the Mercury. And they are on a 12-game losing strike. They're serious, and they're rolling with momentum into the playoffs. Let's be clear. Before this game, the Mercury had won 10 straight. I talked about Skylar Diggins-Smith, Skylar Diggins, and leading the Mercury with an injured Diana Taurasi, who's out for a second straight game. She's been dealing with myriad injuries. I mean, she's 39 now, so that's going to happen. But it's difficult. They have to make a play and make their push without Tarasi and get her healthy for the playoffs because she's necessary. And I don't know how far they can go without her, but they're in the mix, no doubt. But at number one, clearly, the Connecticut Sun. At two, the Las Vegas Aces, who should get Liz Cambage back soon. The Minnesota Lynx, who have an opportunity to move forward. And I'll get into that in a second. They're at number three right now. The Phoenix Mercury at four. And the Seattle Storm slipping out of the mix. But they still have experience. They still have Sue Bird. But they might not have Brianna Stewart going toward the playoffs. She injured her foot this past week. And she's out for the rest of the regular season. Which sounds so much more dramatic when you realize it's less than a week. The regular season. Will she be ready for the playoffs? That's the key. It's going to mean a whole lot to a slumping Seattle Storm team. In Washington. Elena Deladon, who just made, it was like a grand opening, grand closing situation where now she's probably done for the season. She's still having back issues. And I don't know, again, I never tell people to retire, but I mean, it's hard to move a program forward if you're always waiting on your star player and you're trying to build something around that. They just won the championship in 2019. I talked about Emma Mieserman not playing this season for whatever her reasons are, whether it be, you know, burnout from the Olympics and playing overseas, whatever the case might be. But 
It's going to be tough sledding in the land of the Go-Go. Shouts out to Megan McPeak and the Washington Mystics. Now, with Seattle slumping the way they are, Phoenix can move to third place in the seedings, have a more favorable matchup in the first round of the playoffs than they do right now. And I like what Phoenix has. I think because of their veteran savvy, Kia Nurse and Brittany Griner, and they're going to be okay. And I see that if they can manage this thing the last week, they have a couple of games before the playoffs start with no major injuries. Phoenix could be a spoiler in this whole mix because I really see the Sun and the Aces being somewhere near. Shouts out to Becky Hammond, who's having her number 25 retired by the Aces. Now, if you don't know the history of the Las Vegas Aces, they used to be the San Antonio Stars. Then they moved to Utah, became the Utah Stars. Now they're in Vegas. I think that's an upgrade. No dish to Salt Lake City. It's a little bit different than it is in Sin City. Just saying. Now, Becky was an undrafted player back in 1999. I remember her most from when she played with the Liberty. They went to the finals, I think, three straight times. Did not win once, but she was named one of the top 25 players over the 25 years of the WNBA. I may or may not agree, but salute to her for getting her number retired in Las Vegas. The number 25, Becky Hammond. And speaking of teams and retiring jerseys, before I get out of here, I don't know if you guys realize that the Clippers... And the Raptors are the only two teams without jerseys being retired. You're like, well, what about teams that always lose, like Charlotte or Minnesota? Well, for those who don't know, Charlotte retired the number 13 for the late Bobby Phils, who was killed in a high-speed car crash racing his car after practice one day. And in Minnesota, the number two of Malik Seeley, shout out to Riverside Hawks, when he died in an auto accident as well. So, retire. Who are the first numbers these teams retire? I'm curious, and I want to know. In Clipperland, if they don't win anything, whose number do they retire? Like, who's been great in the Clippers? If you know, let me know. I have some suspicions. I'm not going to give my answers, but I do want to know what you think. And I also want to know who you think will be retired in Toronto. And will there be a guy who's retired in both cities? Could be. We'll find out. And hopefully we're not retiring. You're coming back. For at least one more season and one more episode of the podcast where basketball and life are one. So, till next week, do remember, do what's popular with the population, make sure you don't get beat off the dribble, and keep listening to The Open Run with Will Strickland. My man, Rich Kid, do what you do when you do it, my man. Easy.